This is Science 2034. 20 years ago, the Science Coalition was formed to strengthen federal support for basic scientific and engineering research. We tell the stories of what federally funded research has made possible and what will be reality 20 years from now. Our guest today, Chris Kaiser, professor and chair of the Department of Biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Chris, you contributed to a report released in April of 2015 by MIT entitled The Future Postponed, Why Declining Investment in Basic Research Threatens a U.S. Innovation Deficit. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you very much. Now, you authored an essay in this report uh, on infectious disease. And near the beginning, you talk a little bit about the current Ebola outbreak in West Africa, and you stated pretty clearly that there have been many missed opportunities to prepare the tools that we now desperately need to detect, treat, and immunize against poorly understood diseases. How far has the United States fallen behind in this area? Well, I think um, the entire world looks to the United States for leadership in this area, and the fact that, that we've fallen behind really means the entire globe has fallen behind in terms of opportunities to prepare ourselves for impending epidemics like the Ebola epidemic. Let's talk about Ebola for a second. Uh, as you point out, it's something that has been known to scientists uh, since the 1970s. Uh, t tell us a little bit more about the outbreak and where we might have been with uh, a more focused support for research in this area. Well, I think the most the reason I, I, I chose Ebola is because it really made a big splash um, in the newspapers and in the uh, in the consciousness of most Americans as we felt very threatened by the possibility of um, Ebola virally infected people coming over from Africa and then spreading the disease in the United States. And of course, we all know that a few people came over, but the disease spread uh, didn't really happen because of the um, uh, the great work that was done in, in our hospitals and by our health care system. But the, the reason I highlighted Ebola is because we all, I think, had this visceral sense that we had fallen way behind in our capacity to detect this disease. I mean, I'll point out that at the time of the uh, sort of the peak of this crisis, when people were really worried about um, preventing Ebola-infected individuals to come into the United States, our method that was used to, to screen for Ebola was a thermometer. In other words, we were using 19th century technology to screen for a disease which there was absolutely no reason we couldn't have already prepared highly sensitive molecular assays that could work on a uh, short enough time span so that somebody in the uh, lobby waiting for their flight could have been screened before they were allowed to board an airplane. And I think this really shows how um, we can have a blind spot in terms of uh, detecting an impending uh, health problem, but not being willing to actually invest uh, the not very much um, uh, resources in order to prepare for what could be a disaster. Yeah, I, I, I read your essay and, and appreciated, I think many people did, a couple of areas where you describe how existing priorities and incentives are no longer sufficient to prepare for emerging threats. Let's talk for a second. I know that you had the entire biology department at, uh, at MIT. When you talk about those kind of incentives, are we talking about in the commercial scientific space, 
or are we talking about the incentives to public health that should be appreciated at the federal level and therefore funding basic science research? Well, I think the, the way that the system works in our country is that there's a, there's a tremendous collaboration in healthcare between um, federally funded research and, uh, and, and then research that goes on in hospitals and then uh, research that is funded by commercial entities like uh, pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And by and large, that system is so powerful and, and the collaboration is so strong and people kind of understand very clearly uh, where, they, where, where their contributions lie in this um, highly uh, interwoven and inter-supportive network of, of activities that um, I, I think I feel to some extent uh, we've been kind of lulled into a sense of confidence uh, in this system to actually fight all of the different kinds of, um, of health challenges that might come, come about. But there is a blind spot for this system, and the blind spot really is um, it's sort of twofold. When, when you start talking about actually developing drugs and bringing drugs to market, that is an incredibly expensive process. And the only way really currently to do that is to have a for-profit pharmaceutical company in, invest the large amount of money, let's say a billion dollars, to develop a new drug and bring it to market um, with the expectation and the expectation on the part of their shareholders that there will actually be a commensurate financial return on that investment. And the real blind spot is that there are certain areas where uh, drugs are um, desperately needed or, or processes or, or diagnoses are desperately needed, but there is not the underlying um, financial profitability to actually drive the pharmaceutical companies to, to, to do that research. And in the essay, um, I think the classic example of that, or the most, the most striking example of that, is the development of new antibiotics, which um, target new targets in bacterial cells that haven't been, um, uh, been aimed at before. And the pharmaceutical companies just don't see, and, and I, I don't blame them for this because I don't see either, how they're actually going to get a return on the investment that they would make. But the problem that we all now have is that the spread of antibiotic resistance, and it's an inexorable consequence of Darwinian evolution in bacteria, that they, as soon as you start using an antibiotic widely, resistance will develop and spread. The problem is that the, uh, the drugs that we desperately need will only be used in those sparing cases where no other existing relatively inexpensive drugs will work. And so what we're really kind of expecting or asking the pharmaceutical companies to do is to make this huge um, financial investment in, in drugs that can only be used very, very sparingly. And I think that's, uh, in a nutshell, the problem that we face. And I, in, in this case, I think there is no other way forward other than the federal government making a clear, decisive investment in this common good and, and driving the research in academic and, and hospital research centers to find these new antibiotics. As you point out in the essay, drug-resistant bacteria infect at least 2 million people in the United States <clears throat> every year. So let's think about the innovation deficit for a second. I, I appreciate the, the, the point that you're making about a U.S. public health uh, investment in basic scientific research, but barring that, 
where would we be as we look out over the next 20 years? What are the possibilities uh, for for dealing with these deadly spread of bacterial resistant uh, or drug resistant bacteria going forward? The picture is, is, is incredibly grim. I mean, essentially imagine uh, going back in time to what it was like, let's say in the Civil War before antibiotics were developed. And if you got some kind of a, a wound or surgical infection and uh, antibiotics couldn't treat um, that infection, then you would, um, if you were lucky, lose a limb, more likely you would, um, you would succumb to a, a bacterial infection. And that, that, that is um, absolutely what we can expect will start to happen if we don't develop um, next generation antibiotics that can work against these multiply resistant strains. One of the things that I think people are also very interested in when, when they take a look at your uh, essay is the point that you make that uh, Ebola is only one of at least half a dozen equally dangerous threats. Uh, help us understand, uh, while we get focused on that which is in the news, what else is out there that we should be having a, a, a great deal of attention being paid to at this point? Well, there are a variety of different um, um, highly contagious, um, highly lethal viral diseases that are out there. And the, the, the notion of an emerging disease, actually, is not that the disease itself uh, didn't exist before and it, and, it, and it emerges out of thin air. The idea is that um, a highly evolved, that the diseases actually represent, in, in a sense, a, um, an, an evolved symbiotic relationship, let's say, between um, a virus and, 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 and the human organism. And a, a virus is, um, is adapted, or, or the, the sort of Darwinian perfection for a virus is to infect a lot of people and to spread itself around, not necessarily laying the host uh, down on the ground where they're going to die and, and, and actually limit the effect of spread. So if you want to think about it this way, the common cold is probably the pinnacle of um, efficacy in terms of Darwinian evolution of a virus. You get a sort of a, a mild disease and you go uh, sneezing on, on other people and spreading the disease around. These diseases like Ebola, which, um, uh, and actually HIV AIDS, which uh, t tend to kind of kill people outright, are, are thought to be actually um, relatively unevolved diseases in the human organism. The basic idea being that there are diseases of other organisms, um, other mammals generally, that have now been uh, changed slightly enough that they can now infect humans. Those jumps are made um, in relatively unsanitary conditions where humans are living in proximity with animals that may have the disease, get, getting bitten by animals, um, touching animals, and so forth. And so very often, these jumps, if you will, are made in the developing world. And I would say in, in general in the United States, we have something of a blind spot for 
um, the plight of the developing world. And we're, we're sort of used to sort, sort of saying people in the developing world are dying of all sorts of things, starvation and scurvy and so forth, that are not really our, our problem. And I think the developing viral diseases, in a sense, get, get lumped into that same category with a blind spot to the fact that a disease that arises anywhere in the world now with air travel and so forth can spread. You have been uh, operating at the highest levels uh, of your university and in uh, the United States public health sector for some time. You, you talk at the end of the essay about uh, the need to bring in new talent people with new ideas. And, and this plays along with what I hear from so many uh, in positions like yours, that you, you mentor and uh, train the next generation of scientists. And if we're not uh, putting together enough funding to keep folks coming into this area, we will pay the ultimate price. Absolutely. And I think I, 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 I really appreciate you asking me about this, because I think this is, is the uh, most underappreciated aspect of, of the problem of steady funding for basic research. Because you, you have to put yourself in the shoes of a, um, let's say, a, a, a bright 22-year-old um, graduate student in molecular biology at MIT. And they're trying to figure out whether they want to pursue a track at basic research or maybe take their talents elsewhere. Maybe they could consult for a uh, Wall Street investment firm or something like that or do patent law. And they have to, um, uh, for somebody in that position to sort of say, yes, I'm going to go ahead and make this, in essence, 10-year training commitment to f pursue a track in basic research, there has to be some reasonable expectation that there will be a job for them that will allow them to exercise their, their skills and their talent. And the real problem is, I mean, in some sense, I mean, the way I like to look at it is it's a little bit like a, um, um, a great ecosystem. I mean, imagine the, um, uh, you know, a, a, a forest in the, in, the, in the Sierras. I mean, you can't, once you clear-cut that forest, um, you can't in a few years sort of say, gee, I wish the f we had the forest back again because now, you know, we decided it wasn't really worth cutting it down. The problem is you can't go back. It, 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 takes, it takes decades, maybe even centuries to get back to where you were to begin with. And once you let one of these ecosystems wither, then it becomes much, much harder to rebuild it. And I think this is something that many of us at MIT share this concern that if the, the, the opportunity for funding, the opportunity for um, our, our great young talent, which is really the, um, you know, the, the engine that, that drives innovation and discovery and creativity in the United States, if the opportunity for those people going into re pursuing research tracks withers away, then it will take us perhaps the, the deficit may last for perhaps decades. You have participated in a report that's received a great deal of attention in Washington, D.C., this idea of explaining exactly what a U.S. innovation deficit looks like and what impact it can have is catching uh, people uh, in, in a way that, that others have not. And I, I wonder what your feeling is about the innovation deficit. Do you think that we are in the middle of it, in the, in the context of the example you gave us about uh, cross-cutting uh, a forest, 
or is it something that's still preventable here in the United States? I think I think it's definitely preventable. Um, it's or, or we can we can certainly steer uh, towards preventing the, the clear cutting of, of our, our, our our new talent from happening. I have to say at this point, it is not the argument for preparing and preventing this defi- this innovation deficit is not entirely at the feet of the funding agencies, because in fact at least in biomedical research. I mean, it's, it's, it's different in different research areas, but in biomedical research, we have, to some extent, trained too many people with an expectation of being able to run their own research laboratories. Part of this is just that the opportunities have been so fantastic, and the, 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 the technolo- technological development, for example, in, in DNA sequencing, has, has lured so many people into this very exciting area. The problem is that there are not going to be uh, federal research grant support for all of the people that have been brought in. And so I think ma- making sure that Congress continues to prioritize basic research, and I think basic research in areas like uh, molecular medicine are, are, are the areas that, that should have the most priority, the highest priority in terms of their potential for payback for the uh, health care in the United States. I think that's part of the equation, but I think another part of the equation is collectively the, the, the great training institutions, the, the great research universities in the country have to collectively figure out how to structure the research, the the, um, the re- excuse me, how to figure out how to structure the research pipeline and the talent pipeline, so that we are bringing enough people in um, that there aren't that we don't. I'm sorry, that we're bringing in the appropriate number of people, so that we're not ending up overtraining the way that we are currently. So I think this is the the the, the overall innovation deficit actually has many facets to it and 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 there are many accountable parties and many parties in the country that need to pay attention to this and to figure out how to structure our our entire research enterprise so that it's sustainable and brings in the very best talent and and pushes that talent to the top chris kaiser uh... phd professor and head of the department of biology at mit I uh, want to thank you for joining us on Science 2034 and your insights into uh, why declining investment in basic research is threatening a U.S. innovation deficit. Thank you very much. <laughs>